morning, everyone. If you'd like to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. Good to see all of you. I will open us in prayer. Father, I pray for your blessing on this message. I think we're considering some wonderful truths about what Christ has done for us, the true and greater house that he built, that Solomon's temple only prefigured. What a blessing it is that we can be part of it, and my desire would be that your people would grow in their thankfulness for what Jesus has done for them and, and also their understanding of it. I don't know that we can be thankful for what we don't understand, and so I do pray, Lord, that I could speak clearly, especially for some of the parts of the sermon that are a little more technical. I ask that um, you would just guide my words, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit would go before me to people's hearts to open them and give them fertile soil. They receive the word in a way that is very fruitful for them and grows their, um, really that Christ could be exalted. I would be my desire that people would see what he has done for each of us in allowing us to be part of the household of God. We know that it was accomplished through the sacrifice that he made, and so we come from that um, reflection after communion of what Jesus has done on the cross, and what, what a wonderful way now to enter into your words with thankful hearts for Christ's sacrifice. And so I pray that Christ would be exalted during this time, just use me as your vessel to speak to your people. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So this morning's sermon is, Jesus built a greater house. Jesus, or the greater house Jesus built, excuse me, the greater house Jesus built. We're in a series called Pursuing Wisdom, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about wisdom, or excuse me, well, we did spend quite a bit of time talking about wisdom, but what I was going to say was we spent quite a bit of time talking about Solomon. His name can almost be synonymous with wisdom, the way Job's name is synonymous with suffering. And because of our familiarity with Solomon, and also because from those weeks talking about him, and because Jesus drew an association between himself and Solomon, I wanted to spend a few weeks talking about how Jesus is greater than Solomon. It might sound familiar, and uh, because in the Gospels, Matthew twelve forty-two, for example, Jesus said, the Queen of the South came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater is here. And so with our familiarity with Solomon, I want us to understand why Jesus would say this and how he is or it doesn't even say that uh, someone is greater, it says something, what it is that Christ brought with him that allowed him and his ministry and work to be greater than Solomon. And so we're going to spend a few weeks doing that. I want to begin by sharing something interesting with you that happened with Pastor Nathan and I when we were at the Shepherds Conference. We attended, I think we attended all the sessions together, and we left one after the speaker had talked about indicatives versus imperatives. And, and understandably, I, probably every single individual at this conference is a pastor or a preacher of God's Word in some way. And so all of the speakers are speaking to us as preachers, uh, addressing us as such. And in one of the sessions, the gentleman was talking about indicatives and imperatives. And you remember we talked about that a little bit before. And indicatives do, uh, they indicate something. So they would reveal truths or statements to us. Imperatives are commands, and Scripture contains both. We, when you read Scripture, things are being indicated to you, truths are being revealed. At the same time, you encounter commands where you're told to do something. And the speaker said something that stuck with me, and it seemed to stick with Pastor Nathan too, because when he left the session, that's what he wanted to talk about. Um, and the speaker said that it's much easier to preach on the imperatives versus indicatives. Just one more time. He said it's much easier to preach on the imperatives 
or the commands versus the indicative. It's easier to get up here and challenge people or encourage them or tell them to, to do something versus just reveal um, thing, truths that could perhaps seem dry at times. And he said, second, that our preaching should have a very healthy, balanced uh, diet of both. So you shouldn't be leaning too far one way or the other. And then the third thing he said was that if you happen to err to, um, one way or the other, then you should try to balance your, your preaching and ensure that you, um, you know, talk about both equally. And so when Pastor Nathan and I left that session, we began to have this conversation. And I think that if I probably err, I probably err on the side of preaching indicative or preaching imperatives more than indicatives or preaching commands in Scripture more than um, the truths or realities for us. And so the next few weeks about Jesus being greater than Solomon, they're definitely going to be much uh, filled with more indicatives than imperatives. In other words, there's, there's not going to be a huge amount of application in this. You shouldn't feel particularly challenged, but I do hope that you feel particularly thankful. I hope you are developing a better appreciation for Christ as, and what He's done, and I hope your love for Him grows considerably after these sermons. But one of the things that occurred to me is even when sermons are filled primarily with indicatives or statements or truths or realities about our faith, about Christ, about Christianity, even though there's not application directly, there's still application indirectly. And why is that? Because as you learn what Christ has done for you, and as your appreciation for uh, His work grows, and, and as your love for Him grows, what does that motivate you to do? It motivates you to serve Him and to, to live for Him. And so indirectly, just learning about Christ is, is filled with very challenging, um, you know, information. You, I, don't, I think, and I mean this sincerely, it could really only be the unbeliever that could hear what Christ has done and not be moved to obey him. I have no idea how a regenerate person indwelt by the Holy Spirit could listen to a sermon about Christ's work for that person and not be moved to serve him. I just I don't see how that, that could ever occur with a believer. And so as these sermons help our love and affection for Christ grow, I believe it will motivate us to obey him. And this brings us to lesson one, clear teaching about Christ produces obedience. Clear teaching about Christ produces obedience. I want to share something about Katie and I that will hopefully help you see how the sermons can produce or provide application indirectly and produce obedience in our lives. As most of you know, because I think I've talked about it so many times, Katie and I go over the sermon together each week. We go over, you probably even know when we go over it. We go over it on Thursday night together. Friday, I'll make many of the changes. And then Saturday, we go over a, a much more polished um, version of the sermon for the, for the second and final time before I go over it Sunday morning and then end up preaching it. Now, over the years of doing this together hundreds of times, or perhaps even a couple thousand times at this point, and from the number of times that we have sat under preaching, whether if, if I'm listening to someone else preach here and I'm blessed to just be under that ministry and hear the Word of God preached, or we're at a conference, one of the blessings, if you're invited to speak at a conference, is there, if there's other speakers, is when you're not speaking, you're an attendee, and you just get to go, and you get to be fed with God's Word. And so when we go to conferences, we, we're blessed to hear God's Word preached, and then Katie and I start talking about what we heard. And <clears throat> through that time together, 
as well, it has become obvious that Katie and I look for two completely different things in sermons, or we seem to be encouraged by two completely different things. For me, I love strong, crystal, uh, clear teaching. When I listen to sermons, I hope that when that pastor or preacher has concluded that passage, that I leave knowing much more about those verses than I, than I did before. Katie, on the other hand, she craves application. So she wants to be strongly convicted and challenged. And so here's a hypothetical scenario, although I do believe something like this has happened many times, that'll give you an idea what happens if we listen to a sermon that was filled with clear teaching, but perhaps it lacked application. We will, con- we will walk away and discuss the message, and I'll say something like, didn't, didn't he do a fantastic job explaining those verses? I never thought of that before. Maybe I've even preached on those verses, and that didn't occur to me. I'm so thankful, you know, for these gems that have been mined out of there that I get to leave with. It even makes me more enthusiastic about going and, and preaching on these verses in the future. And guess what Katie will say? Boring. <laughs> you know, how does this help me be a better what? Better wife, a better mother. I I don't really care to learn all that obscure information about the minor prophets. (laughs) Now, on the other hand, if the sermon is filled with all this application, but the speaker did not do a very good job expositing or explaining the verses, then it's going to look something like this. We're going to walk out, and Katie's going to say, wasn't that great? You know, don't you just feel so challenged? And, And by challenge, she means beat up so that we can go out and we can live for Christ. Now I'm just so on fire for the Lord. And I'm like, not really. I feel like that guy kind of walked around on stage back and forth and didn't really say much, you know, but he said it really passionately. So it said good to you, sounded good to you. But I remember when he reached the verse and I was waiting for him to exposit it or explain it and he didn't. And I, and I felt very disappointed. So you can tell that Katie and I, sometimes we have trouble agreeing on sermons, which I, I do think is one reason, you know, uh, I'm very blessed to have her as a wife and the wonderful ways that she does help improve my sermons by, by providing an, another um, perspective on them that doesn't come naturally for me. There is a good balance, though, between these two extremes that can please both of us, and it's this. As we hear clear teaching about Christ, which is to say we are hearing indicatives or statements or truths or realities, we want to obey Christ. We want to live with him or live for him which then allows those indicatives to almost be like imperatives be, or almost like application because they're moving us. They're moving us in our affection for Christ. We're stirred up. We're convicted of sin. We think, how could I go on doing what I've been doing? How could I commit this sin again? How could I not, how could I not want to repent and get this out of my life? Or I felt burdened to do this thing I've been putting it off, but just thinking about what Christ has done for me causes me to want to go out and be obedient in this, in this calling that's on my life or this burden that I felt for this time. And so, or another way to say it is, as our love for Christ grows, our desire to obey Him grows. And I'm not just saying this of my own opinion, because didn't Jesus Himself say this? If you love me, John 14, 15, you will obey me. They're, they're, Uh, related. You cannot separate them from each other. The person who loves Christ is the person who obeys Christ. So to teach about Christ is to teach people to love Him. To preach the indicatives is is to help people grow in their affection for Christ, and to preach Christ and see people's love for Him grow is to help people obey Christ. I want to illustrate this relationship 
between, or I want to illustrate what we're talking about with the relationship of a husband and wife. And I didn't choose this except that it's the relationship that really fills Scripture from beginning to end when God wants to describe His relationship with His people. He uses the marriage relationship. In the Old Testament, God is the husband. Israel is the bride or the wife. You move into the New Testament when there's a a zooming in on the second person of the triune nature of God, where Christ is the husband and the church is the bride. And so this is the relationship that God has used, which is why I think it's a fitting example for us. Now imagine this, and I'm not joking. Picture a man, and he's walking down the sidewalk, and he is madly in love with his wife. And an immodestly dressed, you know, immoral, seductive woman walks by. Well, what this man, what does this man do? He rips his eyes away from her. Now here's the question. Why does he do that? Why did he rip his eyes away? Because of his love for his wife because he has set his heart on her and he is committed to not doing anything that would displease her or, or to sin against her. I'll give you another example from my own life. As, you, as most of you know, or probably all of you know by this point, I was raised in the Catholic Church, which is a works-based religion. I don't even think the Catholics would deny that. And so to be in the Catholic Church is to repeatedly hear what you're not supposed to do. Now, what's interesting is you would think that when the focus of a religion is don't do this, don't do that, it would cause you to live a very holy and sinless life. Ironically, or sadly, the, the most comfortable I ever was with sin, or the, for lack of a better way to say it, the easiest I could ever sin, the, the worst sin I ever engaged in was engaged when I was in the Catholic Church. Now, why is that? Well, one reason, the obvious reason, is I didn't hear the gospel when I was in the Catholic Church, so I was an unregenerate person, and an unregenerate or unsaved person lacking the gospel, producing obedience or, or allowing for there to be victory over sin can't help but give in to the temptations that they face. So that's one reason I was just a sinful person, and so of course, or I mean I was an unsafe person, and so of course my life is going to be filled with sin. The second reason, and this alone could be the focus of an entire sermon, largely relates to what Jake preached last week. When you hear commands, they don't, or the law, it doesn't produce obedience, despite what the world thinks. Think of Romans 7. What does the law, or what do commands do because of our sinful flesh? Cause us to want to sin. It stirs up our flesh when we are told not to do something. That's why when a child is told not to do something, they want to do it. I remember I was an elementary school teacher, and someone, and even the unbelieving or secular world apparently recognizes this. It was at a training, and they said, if you want to struggle with students chewing gum all year in your class, make sure you put up a sign on, this, on your wall that says, do not chew gum in here, because kids are going to see that every day, and they're going to want to do it. It's, you know, the, like Jake used the analogy last week. You never want to touch that bench until you saw the sign that says, wet paint, do not touch, right? It sounds comical, but it's true, and why is it like that? It's because we are cloaked in sinful flesh that is stirred up at the thought of being told that we can't do something. And so when I was in the Catholic Church, all I had was that flesh. All I had was the old man. There was no new man. And so I couldn't help but be stirred up to do the things that I was told not to do. Obedience is a byproduct of regeneration, which I didn't have. Now, the third reason, which is what I've been building up to, I had no love for Christ. 
I mean, that's a simple fact. I had no affection for Christ. I would tell you that I believed in him. I would tell you that he died on the cross for my sins. But the problem is, I was in a works-based religion, and a works-based religion is a recipe basically for love for self. And you cannot appreciate what Christ has done for you when you're too busy appreciating what you are doing for you. Or you can't think highly of Christ when you're a self-righteous individual who is convinced he's going to heaven, as I did, because of my good works. Then in my early 20s, I start attending a Christian church. I'm listening to the Bible be preached for the first time. I'm learning these wonderful truths. Someone buys me a Bible. I begin devouring it and reading it in my free time. My affection for Christ grows, and then so too does my desire to obey him. I did not even have to read imperatives to want to obey Christ. It was simply just seeing what my Savior had done for me and then sin becomes this anathema that you don't want in your life because you would, you're, it's horrible to think of displeasing your Savior. Now, I started performing more counseling again, and, which is a blessing. It was harder to do, but Audrey takes on most of the administration. She does a fantastic job. Pastor Nathan helps with some of it. And when I, I've, we've also been attending the Chris's Home Fellowship Wednesday night. And Andrew and I had this conversation about counseling, and I recognized that we both approach counseling the exact same way. Very early on, we will ask people something close to, what does your devotional time look like? When you ask someone, what does your devotional time look like, what, what are you actually asking them? You're asking them, what does your time with Christ look like? You're asking them, what does your relationship with the Lord look like? Because the way that those two go together. And now, why would we ask this? Well, it's a, it's a window into people's relationship with Christ, and if people don't love Christ, even the best counseling in the world is not going to motivate them to obey Him. Does that make sense? If you're dealing with people who have no heart for Christ, you could tell them all of the right things, but they are not going to be moved to obey. They're going to have absolutely no incentive. But once people get the vertical right very often, many of the horizontal problems have a way of working themselves out. And so, it really is not an oversimplification, and I offer this because all of you should see yourselves as counselors. The best way to counsel is to point people to Christ. If you can point people to Christ, that relationship can be strengthened, then by extension, the other relationships, which might have problems, which are really more just the symptoms of the problems in the vertical relationship, have their, have their way of resolving themselves. It's not to say you don't have to address other topics, but it just seems that as people grow closer to Christ, these other problems just have a sort of way of falling away. Now, all of that to say, we're going to spend a few weeks being pointed toward Christ in these sermons. And as we study Him, what He's done for us, as our love for Him grows, I'm convinced that our desire to obey Him is going to grow as well. And we're going to start in 2 Samuel 7, this chapter is one of the most important in the Old Testament because it contains the Davidic covenant. I wanted to look at it because we're talking about Jesus being greater than Solomon, and this is the first clear association between Jesus and Solomon or the first clear example of Jesus being greater than Solomon. We looked at this chapter two weeks ago. I'm not going to, so it's given us a nice foundation. You remember we were talking about when God says no, and do you remember why we looked at this chapter, what the example is? God said no to David when David asked what? He asked to build the temple for God. God said no. In a sense, 
David asked to build a house for God. God said no, but then said, instead, I'm going to build a house or a dynasty for you. And so we're going to pick up where we concluded um, two weeks ago. All you need to know is that we're, we're right at the point where, God, where David asked to build the house for God. God says no, and he promises quite a few wonderful, really tremendous things for David. Look with me at verse 8. Now therefore, so this is God talking to Nathan the prophet, therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, you shall tell him, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastor, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And here's the first promise, the first I will statement. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And this is the first of eight times, I believe, in verses 9 through 14, that God says, I will to David, which shows the unconditional nature of this covenant, which is to say these are things that God is going to do independent of David. They are not conditional on him. And the first promise is a great name. And has God given David a great name? David's name is not greater than Christ's, but in a sense, he has a greater name than Christ and that his name is embraced even within religions that reject Christ. It's a little bit like Abraham. Christ's name is only revered within Christianity. How is Christ viewed in Judaism? Despised. How's David viewed in Judaism? Revered. Same with Islam. And so you have David being highly esteemed among, just like God said here, many people. He has a great name. The second promise, verse 10, I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. So God promises in the second, this second promise a safe place for the nation of Israel. Now, if you kind of take your minds back and think about David's life, and we think of him primarily probably as a king, but if we back up, we've got um, general, we've got soldier, we go before that and we've got what? Where do we first see David? What is he doing? He's the shepherd, right? And in a sense, it's almost like that ministry continued and that God allowed him to be the shepherd of his people. Well, as a shepherd, what is David going to uh, desire for his flock? A, A place for them where they don't have to keep being moved around. And that's what God says, you know, as the shepherd of my people, I will give you this location where they can remain. Verse 11, from the time that I appointed judges who preceded the kings, the judges ruled over them for about three and a half centuries. The judges ruled over my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The third promise. Uh, You consider how much David fought in his lifetime. This would be wonderful to hear that there are no more enemies for him to fight. Much of the reason, I mean, can you think of an instance of Solomon fighting a battle? Why didn't he ever fight an enemy? Basically because David had killed all of them. And so this would have been a good thing for David to hear that there aren't any left for him to have to defeat after all the battles he fought in his lifetime. So that's the third promise, rest from enemies. Verse 11 goes on, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And just notice at the end of verse 11, God says, I am going to make you a house, basically instead. You want to make me one, but I will make you one. And this is the fourth promise, a son to always sit on the throne. Now, here's the important thing to keep in mind. The main reason we're looking at these verses is not 
primarily to talk about Solomon. I do understand that Solomon is in view here, but Solomon is in view partly, and this is going to be real important. So if you're writing or doing something else, (laughs) give me your attention. Make sure that you don't miss this. You're failing to appreciate what's happening in these verses if you do not look past Solomon to see Jesus. Every single covenant in the Old Testament had its fulfillment in Christ. If you happen to look at any covenant in the Old Testament and not see Christ, you you fail to appreciate what that covenant is primarily about. Even you could say, well, the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant showed man that he needed a Savior, that he could not keep the Mosaic law, whether it's the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the the, uh, Adamic covenant, the uh, Davidic covenant right here, they're all looking forward to and finding their fulfillment in Christ. And so when we look at this verse, yes, Solomon is present, but in a secondary, partial way. The full representation or fulfillment is in Christ. And you know and you know that. Look at the end of verse... Have we read verse 13 yet? Okay, look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. At the beginning of the verse, it says the word he. Now, here's my question for you. Who is he? Who's he? Who do you want to say he is? You want to say Solomon, because you know Solomon built the house. You go to the end of the verse, and then you get confused because the word forever is there, and it says his kingdom forever. And then you're like this. Okay, well, Solomon, I know Solomon builds this house, but I know that Solomon didn't have a kingdom that lasted forever. So how do we reconcile this? There's this partial fulfillment in Solomon, but the true and greater full fulfillment is found in Christ. The word forever reveals that. So David wanted to build God a house, but God is going to build him a house that lasts forever. And I think we know this. That can't be fulfilled in Solomon, especially after we read about many of his failures. We know that this is looking to Jesus. And this brings us to lesson two. Jesus built the true and greater house of God. Jesus built the true and greater house of God. And then go ahead and turn to John 2. We won't turn back to 2 Samuel 7 until next week. Turn to John 2. So think of it this way. Just allow these words to wash over you as you turn there. Solomon built the physical, earthly temple or house of God. Jesus built the spiritual, eternal house or temple of God known as the church. For a moment, think about what the temple actually was. Just bring your minds to it. If you can picture it largely consisted of these two rooms, the priest could enter the first room, the holy place, but only the high priest on the Day of Atonement could enter the most holy place. In the most holy place resided the ark, and then residing above the ark was the presence of God himself. And so the high priest would enter the most holy place to be in the presence of God. So it's important to understand that the temple was the meeting place between God and man, or the temple is when God and man were brought together. But when I say that, God and man brought together, we know that not in the truest or greatest sense. When were God and man brought together in the truest or greatest sense? At the incarnation, the birth of Christ, when the second person of the triune nature of God came from heaven to earth and was born as a man. That's when God and man were truly brought together. 
So the point is, just as the temple brought deity and humanity together in this partial sense, God and man, or deity and humanity, were truly brought together in the person of Jesus Christ, and the temple itself prefigured that, or prefigured the incarnation, or looked forward to the body of Christ uniting deity and humanity. Now, with that said, can you think of one time in Jesus' earthly life when he drew a connection or association between himself or his body and the temple? Let me ask this one more time. This will be important because we must see the association between the body of Christ and the temple. And can you think of one time when he laid that out for us? If you're in John 2, look with me at verse 18 to see it. John 2, verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews look at their response, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, if you pause for a moment, when I speak, which is the case uh, for all of you as well, I try to be clear. You try to be clear. Sometimes we recognize we're not being as clear as we should, and then we, we try to clarify to remove any confusion. What's interesting about Jesus is, and we recognize generally that when we cause confusion or are unclear, it's a reflection of us communicating poorly or doing something wrong. Do you know who probably might have spoken and caused more confusion than anyone else in all of history? Jesus. I mean, most of the time that his mouth opened, there was confusion. Even the people closest to him couldn't seem to understand what he was talking about much of the time. But here's the thing. When there's confusion when I speak, I recognize that's my fault. Did Jesus ever say one word that he shouldn't have said? Was there ever an imperfect thought? Was there anything about his life or ministry that was ever wrong or could have been improved on? No, you know the answer to that is no. So anytime there was ever confusion, Jesus wasn't making a mistake. It wasn't his fault. He shouldn't have said something better or, or said something differently. He said exactly what he was supposed to say. He said exactly what the Father wanted him to say. If Jesus wanted to be clear or clearer, he could have been. He did not have to make an illusion or metaphor between his body and the temple except that that's exactly what he wanted to do. Even though the people were con confused by this, it's not as though Jesus should have chosen some other words that said things differently. He had every intention of establishing the connection or association between his body and the temple. And here's what I think is happening. He's largely surrounded by overly religious Jews. The Judaism of the Old Testament had become this very perverted and twisted works-based religion that allowed the temple itself to become somewhat of an idol that the people practically worship. Jesus is trying to get them to look past the earthly temple that they worship, or let me say it like this. Jesus is trying to get them to take their attention off of the earthly temple and put the attention where? On him. Stop worshiping. Stop seeking your righteousness from the temple itself and find your righteousness coming from faith in me. Now, one reason I'm certain of this is the next verse. Go ahead and look with me there. Verse 22. When therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, 
his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here's what's beautiful. Prior to this verse, it might have looked like Jesus said something wrong or caused some confusion. Was Jesus wrong? Did he say anything wrong? Absolutely not. In fact, after the resurrection, they were only confused because the resurrection hadn't taken place yet. After the resurrection took place, they were able to think back to what he said, and then they came to faith or salvation. His words, which had previously caused confusion, provided regeneration or salvation for his listeners. Okay, now I need you to keep this in mind, kind of try to hold this in your mind and turn to Acts 2. This is Pentecost. So while you turn there, you remember what took place at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit descends. The people begin speaking in tongues. And those looking on believe that those speaking in tongues are what? Are drunk. And so Peter needs to explain this. He needs to explain that what they're seeing is not what they are, are thinking that they're seeing. And so let me briefly explain the verses, and then we'll read them so they make sense. Peter, believe it or not, what he actually wanted to do was he wanted to convince them that Jesus was resurrected. That's what he's doing. Primarily, this long, beautiful, wonderful speech from Peter is meant to convince those people listening that what they are seeing is evidence of Christ's resurrection, and here's why. Peter is basically saying that the only way what they're seeing could be taking place is that Jesus has been resurrected, ascended to heaven, reached the right hand of the Father, and then did what? Sent out the Holy Spirit, which caused these people to speak in tongues. And so what they're actually seeing is evidence of Jesus' resurrection. So it's this wonderful way where Peter says, no, nobody's drunk. You're just seeing that the Messiah who had been crucified has been resurrected and ascended to heaven, and this is the evidence of it. Okay, with that in mind, look at verse 31. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, or he didn't remain in the ground. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So he says, what you're witnessing is evidence of his resurrection, because, verse 33, he has been exalted at the right hand of God, where he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing right now. So Jesus is a resurrected, ascends to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing, we kind of read that, so we could understand this. When Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, what was he building on the earth? The temple or the house of God. Spiritually speaking, this is the birth of the church. Jesus is the builder of the spiritual house of God when he sent out the Holy Spirit. So we can say Jesus is he built the true and greater temple or house. Now listen to this interesting verse. You don't have to turn there, but I'll give you the context for it. So the temple is destroyed. Now we're going to the Old Testament. The Solomon's temple is destroyed. The Jews go into exile. They return from exile, and they begin rebuilding the temple after the, after the decades that they had spent in Babylon under the ministry of Ezra and Zerubbabel. And they're rebuilding the temple but there's some prophets that were preaching to them at that time 
who don't often get as much attention, but those are the post-exilic or post-exile prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Because when they, when they were rebuilding the temple after the exile, it was a terribly discouraging and difficult ministry, returning to this desolate wasteland surrounded by all of these enemies. They needed to be challenged and encouraged by the Word of God, which was coming through Haggai and Zechariah. Now listen to this with that in mind. Listen to this interesting verse. Zechariah 6.12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, referring to Jesus, for he shall branch out from his place, referring to Jesus branching out from heaven and coming from heaven to earth. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Zechariah 6.12 says that Jesus is going to build the temple of the Lord while Zerubbabel is leading the people to build the earthly physical temple. And so here's my point. Even while they're going about the rebuilding of the earthly physical temple, God still spoke to his people through the prophet Zechariah to let them know that there will be a true and greater temple built than the one you're building now when the Messiah comes on the scene and builds the spiritual house of God, which is the greater, most important one. So look past, look past even this earthly temple that you're building now to the greater one that Christ will build. Now, keeping all this in mind, let's try to tie this together. Keeping in mind the relationship between Jesus' body and the temple, let's connect the dots. The temple, or the earthly body of Christ, was destroyed and then rebuilt, or crucified, and then resurrected. Then Christ, in his physically resurrected, or we could say rebuilt, body or temple, ascends to heaven. At Pentecost, Christ sends the Holy Spirit from heaven to earth to establish or build a temple or house of God on the earth in the absence of his physical body. So in a sense, it's almost like the temple through Christ ascends to heaven at his ascension, and then the Holy Spirit reestablishes that temple or house on the earth in the absence of Christ's physical body which is why you are what? You are the body of Christ. Now, you can listen to this and you can say, well, why is this significant to me? It should be significant because you are part of this house. You are part of this house that Christ is building. It is a tremendous reality or, or beautiful thing to consider that just like that temple was built in the Old Testament with all of those earthly stones, it is now being built with you being part of it as living stones laid one on top of another with Christ being the chief cornerstone for that building. And this brings us to lesson three. We are part of the house Christ built. We are part of the house Christ built. I'm going to go through some verses pretty quickly because if I drill down into them, it's going to slow us down. Sometimes it's good to just have, you know, a, a handful of different verses sort of being fired at us so that we can hear the theme and have this elevated view of the point that they are making. And that's what I want to accomplish by introducing these verses that are communicating the main point that we're considering in this sermon, that we're part of this house that Christ has built. Ephesians 2.19 you're no longer strangers and aliens or nomads, as, as Eldon said in his sermon, or the communion devotion. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household 
of God. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place or house or temple for God by the Spirit. Solomon built this physical house, Jesus building the spiritual house. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. 1 Timothy 3, 15, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So the greater temple or house, it's not built out of any earthly stones, nothing that Solomon did, nothing that the Jews after the exile did. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews 3, right after Paul's letters, unless you think Paul wrote Hebrews. Turn to the end of Paul's letters and you'll see Hebrews right before James and Peter. Now while you turn there, I just want to ask you a question. The book of Hebrews, if you had to capture it in one word, it's about Jesus being what? The better. The book of Hebrews is about Jesus being better. The book of Hebrews is not about any bad things. It's about a bunch of good, wonderful things, but about Jesus being better than them. Hebrews chapter 1, he begins, and Jesus is better than the prophets. They were great. They were wonderful. And then Jesus is better than the angels. And then Jesus is better than Joshua. Joshua is a wonderful captain of the people, but how much better is Jesus as the captain of our salvation? Jesus is better than the promised land. How wonderful was the promised land, but how much greater is the rest that Eldon read about in Matthew eleven twenty to 30 that Jesus provides a rest for our souls? Joshua brought him into a wonderful promise, and Jesus brings us into such a better promise. And well, in, in Hebrews 3, and that's just the first couple chapters, in Hebrews 3, we're going to look at Jesus being better than Moses. So look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And it might sound a little odd to call Jesus an apostle because you say, well, there's the 12 apostles, there's not the 13 apostles. I really thought about Jesus being an apostle. I've been asked, were there 12 disciples or were there 12 apostles? Kind of the answer is yes, because a disciple is a student or a learner. An apostle is a messenger or a delegate who sent out somebody who sent out with a message. And so the disciples were first students who were trained and learned, and then they were sent out as apostles. Well, in a sense, if without understanding of what an apostle is, someone sent out with a message or a delegate, uh, someone um, being sent out as a delegate from someone else, could there be a better example of an apostle than Jesus, who was sent out with a message from heaven to earth by his Father, and who delivered that message and carried on that ministry so perfectly? So he is the, he is the greatest apostle. He is the high priest of our confession. Verse 2, who, this is Jesus, he was faithful to him, he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful 
in all God's house. Now, it says house, but it means household because it's referring to the nation of Israel or the people of faith in the Old Testament. Now, if you were to think about the most faithful steward or shepherd of God's people, after you think about David, you think about Moses. I mean, Joshua was great, led the people 25 years, but nobody really compares to Moses. Moses' faithfulness over the nation of Israel for those 40 years to bring them out of Egypt to the border of the promised land. And so he was very, Moses was very faithful over the house or household of God. But here's the point. Jesus built the house or household that Moses was only part of. Despite all of Moses' greatness, he is still part of the house or household, and Jesus is the builder of that house. Look at verse 3 with that in mind. This is why Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor or deserves more honor or glory than the house itself, because despite all of Moses' greatness, he's still just part of the house. Jesus is the builder of that house. It's the idea that when you're, you're looking at a house and you might appreciate the, the beauty or elegance or extravagance of it, you don't really praise the house. You're praising the builder of that house. And so the author of Hebrews is just saying you can appreciate the house or household of God and Moses being the steward of it. He's part of it. You need to appreciate Christ who is the builder of that house itself. Now, what does it mean for us that Jesus built that house? I mean, why learn all this? If I had to say it in one word, what has encouraged me as I've been reflecting on it this week and especially uh, as things around us, whether nationally or globally, unfold that we dislike or that could cause us some amount of concern or alarm, what I kept thinking was contained in the word durable or the word sturdy. No matter how, how much things seem to be shaking around us, or sometimes it could even seem unfolding, I can't help but think of the sturdiness and durability of the house that Christ has built that I am part of, which means what? I am not going anywhere. It doesn't matter what happens around me. I'm going to be standing firm, not because of any effort or strength on my part, but because I am part of that house that Christ himself is building. And this brings us to lesson four. Nothing can destroy what Christ builds. Nothing can destroy what Christ builds. We're trying to, I'm, I'm trying to show, or I want to talk about how Jesus is greater than Solomon. So let's kind of go back to the beginning, circle back to understand how Jesus is greater by thinking about what Solomon built. Now, let me just ask you a question. Did Solomon build a magnificent temple? You can say yes, he did. He built a magnificent temple. And part of the reason we read about it two weeks ago, because his father David gathered all of the great materials for it. Nothing wrong with the temple. It was a tremendous temple that Solomon built. What happened to it? It was destroyed. The Jews returned. They rebuilt it. And I don't know if you know this, but then the, the temple actually became possibly greater than even the temple Solomon built when another man came on the scene who was known for his building projects, 
He didn't have any heart for God, but he did want to please the Jews because he was ruling over them, and that's Herod, known as Herod the Great because of his great building projects, one of them being the temple. So he beefs it up. He takes, this, he takes the temple. It's like the temple on steroids and makes it this amazing thing of the, of the ancient world. And then what happened to it? It was destroyed as well. One of the interesting things is Herod's temple was so great that when the Jews thought of the destruction of it, they equated it with the destruction of the world itself. Or in other words, the only way the temple could be destroyed would be if the world was destroyed. And so that's why it was so shocking to the disciples or anyone who was listening when Jesus said what? You can look at this temple, see all of the stones, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be here left one upon another that will not be thrown down. And then what did the disciples start doing? They started asking him about the end of the world because they thought that must be what Jesus is talking about then. And so they had no idea that he was talking about something that was going to happen 40 years later when Rome under Titus came and destroyed the, destroyed the temple and slaughtered so many Jews. The point is it was destroyed too. Now, what did Jesus want for you and for me? He wanted us to have so much confidence in the durability or the sturdiness of the house that he built for God that you are part of that he said you could bring everything hell offers against it and it will not be destroyed. Nothing can take down this house that I am building. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. Now that's sturdy, isn't it? I I don't think Jesus could have explained or captured the sturdiness or durability of the house that I am part of any better than with those sentiments. If he could have convinced us in a stronger way, I suspect that he would have done it. And so when I read this, I, I am confident in my salvation. I'm confident in my salvation, not because of anything I have ever done or ever could do, but because of what Christ has done. The other night, Katie was talking to me, I might have been last night, and she said, if I could lose my salvation, I'd probably lose it. Or why would people think that if you can lose your salvation that you wouldn't lose it? And, but I'm convinced that I'm secure in my salvation because I'm not trusting in myself. I don't know if that sounds prideful or self-righteous to you. I don't intend it to sound that way, but it's because I am not confident in anything I've done. I'm, I'm confident in what Christ has done for me. Since we're part of that temple, that means it can never be destroyed. Spiritually speaking, speaking we're indestructible. This verse came to mind, Matthew seven twenty-five. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. It did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, I want to close with this. In thinking about what man builds versus what God builds, the Tower of Babel came to mind. Many of the building projects of man, such as the temple, were ones that God had ordained. The Tower of Babel was not. This was something, there, were, there was sin prior to the Tower of Babel because the flood was prior to Babel, right? There had been plenty of wickedness on the face of the earth prior to Genesis 11. But one of the things that made the Tower of Babel so distinct was it was the first organized rebellion by man against God. And just listen to a couple of these verses. The people said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Come, let us, notice the repetition of the words, let us, let us, it's all about them, their works, what they're doing. Let us build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves or else we're going to be scattered 
over the face of the whole earth. You, you hear the pride, the self-righteousness, while they pile one brick on top of another, and whose name do they want exalted? Let us make a name for ourselves. It's not about making a name for God. And I could be wrong about this, um, you know, but I, don't, I think they wanted to escape another flood. I think they wanted something high, and if the waves came in again, then they would, I mean, it's, it's not coincidence that it follows right after the, there is a global flood, and it shows their distrust in God. They were unbelieving people. God said, I will not flood the earth again. They didn't believe it, and so they build this, this tower thinking they can reach heaven and be safe should that happen again, and this is a picture of false works-based religions. It is a picture of man trying to reach heaven in his own effort. This is what man builds. People can spend their lives piling one brick on top of another, trying to get to heaven in their own effort, and they don't get any closer than the people that built the Tower of Babel. This gentleman, I don't know whether I have the time to tell you guys this. I'll tell you anyway. (laughs) He calls the church yesterday, and the Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm serious about this, I think they're getting trained differently. Because this is, the, this is the third or fourth Jehovah's Witness who has called the church, and they're all beginning the same way. And I want you to be equipped. I want you to be ready for this. They all call the church, and they ask for a pastor. And I say, this is a pastor. And, they, and then they begin very deceitfully. In my mind, it's deceitful. They say, well, I have a question I would like answered. And I know I say they're being deceitful because they never get to the part where they want to let me answer. They just lecture me, and they preach to me for a very long time. And so this gentleman calls and he says, you know, I was looking at your statement of faith where you discuss that God exists as three persons, and they don't say that they're a Jehovah's Witness, and then they start telling me, well, here, you know, I was reading this, and this says that Jesus is a son of God, but he's not God, and they go on and on for a very long time, and then I said, and it's actually happened enough times I said to this gentleman yesterday, I said, okay, I've been on the phone with one of you before, and I will invest a considerable amount of time to answer your question, but the problem is when you guys call, you don't want to listen to me. You don't want to hear my thoughts, which is fine, but let's save each other a bunch of time and just get off the phone right now. And he said, no, I'm, I, I'm interested, I'll listen. And I said, okay, let's go to Exodus 3. Let's look at the angel of the Lord. And God spoke to Moses of the burning bush. Let's go to Isaiah 9. Even their Bible says in Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born who is wonderful counselor, mighty God. They read that. Hebrews 1, you've got God the Father calling God the Son, God, taking him to all these places, and they have excuses for all of them. The guy constantly interrupts me. I'll tell you something funny that happened. So I decided that when they called back, because I thought it would keep them from calling some other church, what I do is I set my phone down, I put it on speakerphone and mute it. And then I keep working at my computer. I'm totally serious. So I'm working at my computer and, and I can even dictate because the phone is muted, the church phone. So then Pastor Nathan calls and he says, hey, is someone in your office talking to you? And I said, you're not going to listen to Jehovah's Witnesses call, and I've got, I've got the Jehovah's Witness on the phone, and he's just talking, talking, and I just let him talk for a really long time. And, he, <laughs> and Nathan said, well, do you, do you listen? I said, well, I was, I mean, until you called me, and, and then, because I'm work, I'm, this is the truth. I mean, it would, be, it would be fairly rude to not listen at all. So, I, <laughs> so I'm working, <laughs> I'm working, I'm dictating, and I have a little notepad here, and I take notes on things he says so that I can respond. But the thing is, every time I start to respond, he interrupts me every time he tells me he won't. And so, so I do kind of take some notes, but then I get on the phone, and, and I'm talking to Pastor Nathan, and the guy says, hey, are you still there? And I'm like, Nathan, hold on one second. I'm just like, yes, I'm still here. Go ahead. And so I put him on mute, and I sent it back, set it back down. But here's the problem. When I set him back down, and this is at the, about the 35-minute mark of his conversation with me, I didn't mute it. 
Yeah, I didn't mute it. I'm serious. So I get back on the phone, and I'm like, yeah, Nathan, he's still talking, and he's going on and on. But, I, but at least if he's on the phone with me, then he's not going to be on the phone with some other church. And so, and so then the guy starts yelling, and I'm like, I didn't mute it. And I pick up the phone, and he's like, he's like, this is one of the, and he's really angry with me. And I'm like, I'm sorry. My associate pastor called him super swamped. And, you know, he's not really hearing any of this because he's so mad. And so I actually put the phone down, but this time I muted it again to let him scream at me. <laughs> he kind of goes on like this for a long time until finally I just started hearing the dial tone. Beep, beep, beep. I was like, well, I guess he got tired and just got off the phone, you know. But it was probably an hour or something like that. So anyway, let's go ahead and get back to our sermon here and what we're talking about with our notes. I'm sure there was some relationship. Okay, the relationship was this guy is piling bricks. This guy thinks he's saved by his work. This guy thinks he's saved in his own effort. That's why he calls churches like this. This is where his confidence is. If he calls enough churches and harasses enough pastors, you know, then perhaps he'll be good enough to get into heaven. And when they build these buildings, like this gentleman on the phone is building, or like they were building at the Tower of Babel, they think it's indestructible. You know, this is where their confidence is and the number of phone calls they can make or the number of doors that they can, that they can, people they can visit and knock on their doors. And it's an offense to God. They're not clinging to Christ. They're not clinging to the house that he has built. They're, they're not clinging to what he has done. They're clinging to what they build. They're clinging to their works, which are filthy rags before our perfect God. And so we must choose whether we want to be part of some man-made structure, some works-based religion that is destructible, or we want to be part of what Christ has built, this indestructible house that will never be destroyed, even if the gates of hell come against it. And that's the house I want to be part of. Is when I look around and I see other things happening in our world, despite how concerning or alarming they might be, I am confident, I am secure in the house that Christ has built. I am part of it. I am one of those living stones, and I will not be shaken. And so let's choose to be part of that eternal, indestructible house that Christ has built. Father, we thank you for what Jesus has done. We thank you for his work and what he's building. We thank you for his house and the tremendous privilege it is to be part of it, to be one of those living stones, not a dry, earthly, uh, dead, lifeless stone, but to be a living one. That, that is being built by Christ with him as the chief cornerstone. We think of the foundation, the apostles and the prophets laid. We are adding to those stories, and nothing, even hell itself, can't come against it, Lord. And let, it, let that be a great encouragement for us, grow our faith and love for Christ in the, in the midst of anything that we see going on around us, so our confidence is in him and what he's done. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.